for this uh, Palm Sunday. This day where uh, we uh, come face to face with the reality that you willingly uh, set your face toward Jerusalem, knowing that you would be delivered up. Uh, It would be time for you to lay your life down. And God, I pray as we take a look here at Luke chapter 19, Luke's account of this beginning of this Passion Week, God, that we would, that you'd move us. God, I pray that we would, uh, our hearts would be moved and that we'd be reminded of the judgment that we deserve that was put upon you. God, I pray that you would move us by the reality that we have been declared innocent because of the shed blood of Jesus, that you would move us to weep for others and to shine and share the only news uh, that can set them free from inevitable judgment. We love you and pray that you'd be honored and glorified. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. So welcome to uh, Windsor Community Church on this Palm Sunday. What a great week this is that we get to be in this side of history where we can look back and, um, and see um, all that Christ accomplished. I don't know if you participated in the 24 hours of prayer or not. Um, if you did not, I want to encourage you to go to Realm, and um, there's a link. Look for one of Bonnie's posts from Friday, I think, and there's a link to over 200 prayer requests. And um, these prayer requests will move you. Um, because of the, um, I could almost, uh, it was, I could almost feel the tears of the people that wrote these prayer requests, that there are so many prayer requests for loved ones that are far from Christ, that are, don't have a relationship with Jesus. And there was, there were many other prayer requests for healing of loved ones. So I'd say the two primary categories was save my loved one. And the other was, one was heal my loved one of their temporal infirmities. It's hard not to weep. Um, it's hard not to cry when you read these, knowing that these are people um, that are in relationship with other people, and their hearts are broken for the condition of the heart of these people they love. And it's good to weep, especially um, us guys. Like, we don't do it enough. We want to be strong. Yet we see in a couple of places in Scripture where Jesus wept. Um, The first time that we saw that he wept is when, I think it was Mary, maybe it was Martha, but I think it was Mary that came running out to him because her brother Lazarus had died. And just seeing her pain, he knew that he would raise him from the dead, but seeing her pain, he wept. And the second time that we saw him weep was what we're going to look at here today in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44 where Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem as the people were coming in to celebrate the Passover, that he wept because of what was coming to them physically and what was ahead for them spiritually if they didn't repent. So we should weep and pray for those who need temporal healing, those who have cancer, those who are uh, broken in some way, because our God is a God who can heal. 
The thing is, there's an order. There's an order of the way we should pray. There's an order for the way we should care. And that order is, um, involves both the temporal and spiritual needs of our loved ones. All who have been united by faith in Christ will be healed. If you know Jesus Christ, whatever you are experiencing today in this temporal world, in these physical bodies, whatever it is, you will be healed. So we can take that to the bank. And we should pray for those um, that are in Christ that want healing today. We should pray because God does that at times. And we should also pray for those who are non-Christians for their physical healing. But if we're praying for the physical healing of non-Christians without being moved to tears for their eternal condition, then God wants, I pray that God would move our hearts today to a place where we care more about their eternality than we do about their temporal healing. So let me ask you this morning, what do you weep over? What do you cry over? What, what makes you, what breaks your heart? And does that weeping move you to action? I might want the best for someone. I pray I do, and I, I, there's many people I want to see to come, come to faith. But the question that I ask myself this morning, and I ask you this morning, are you willing to enter into their mess? Are you willing to enter into their mess and potentially mess up the peace that you have with them? Are you willing to enter in and bring the peace of the gospel that might ultimately make for a very unpeaceful relationship with you? Jesus condescended into our mess so that all who turn from their sin and trust in his death for the forgiveness of their sins will be healed. So there's three main points this morning that I want you to take home with you. I pray that you, first of all, the overarching point is that we'd be moved by the weeping judge, Jesus. And number one, that, uh, that we would see that Jesus was judged for guilty sinners and that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. We're all guilty sinners saved by grace if you know Jesus. So I pray that you would see that Jesus was judged for guilty sinners like you. Number two, that we would weep over other guilty sinners. And number three, that in our weeping, we would be moved unto action. So as I mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that kicks off the Holy Week or the Passion Week where Christians around the world observe the death and resurrection of Jesus. And my prayer today, again, is that you would have a deeper understanding of the intentionality of Jesus to step into judgment so that those who trust him will never be judged. And I pray that this understanding that Jesus stepped in to be judged so that you would never be judged would move us to weep for others, and in our weeping, we would be moved unto action. Jesus was born into the royal line of David. It was David's throne that was, that was promised, that the, that the coming Messiah would, be a, would come from David's line. And that Jesus came from that line, and he was destined to be a king of a kingdom that has no end. Now here we are, Palm Sunday, about five days from now, his perfect life will end. 
And in the months leading up to this Palm Sunday, we saw Jesus predict his death three different times in the four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three different times. Uh, he told his disciples that he was going to die, he was going to Jerusalem to die, and he concealed this reality from the public. He didn't want the public to know because he, he wanted to lay his life down on his timing, uh, not on the timing of other people. The second time that Jesus foretold his death and asked that it be concealed was in Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 45, and it says this. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. <clears throat> and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then after this second prediction of his coming death, it started to get real. In chapter 9, which is really the turning point in Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. It was now time for him to head towards Jerusalem to lay his life down. <clears throat> and would be in the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, that he would receive his crown and establish his forever kingdom. And he would do that, of course, through his death and his resurrection. So Luke underscored this turning point in Christ's ministry by showing Jesus' determination to complete his mission of going to the cross to be judged for the sins of the world. <clears throat> then verse 52 Luke chapter 9, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He was headed for the Passover. Samaritans didn't do that. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. You see, Jesus didn't come to judge the world. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save the world. And I want, to see, I want you to see the, the attitude of the disciples here because I feel like oftentimes it's the attitude of the church that we spend more time judging uh, the culture and asking God to bring down fire and brimstone on the culture rather than asking God to save people that are in the culture because the hope for the culture, the hope for any nation is not for them to be destroyed necessarily but to be saved to put their full faith and trust in Jesus But the disciples don't understand that. They believe that Jesus is going to be the king to bring in a political kingdom and to deliver them from their political oppressors, namely Rome at this point in the narrative. What they didn't understand yet was that Jesus came not to judge, but he came to be judged so that all would turn to them, him, so that they too would not be judged. And the third time that Jesus revealed his upcoming death, he said this in Luke 18. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He came to die so that all who believe might live. 
He chose this path. It was no accident. Nobody tricked him. His journey for the cross, to the cross, was motivated by his love for humanity. His mission would be accomplished through suffering and death, not, not judging the people. He would conquer the enemies of sin and Satan and not the political enemies of the Jews. His mission again, verse 19, Luke 19.10, was to seek and save the lost. In bearing our sins, the just wrath of God was satisfied. As Jesus took God's just punishment upon himself, Jesus was judged for the sins of guilty sinners who deserve judgment. Should be a word that you're hearing a lot this morning. And it's judgment. It's a word that we need to understand. We need to understand who's being judged and who's not being judged and what the purpose of judgment is. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem, after he set his face towards Jerusalem in chapter, 19, or chapter 9, and he did all kinds of miracles and talked in parables between chapter 9 and, verse, and chapter 19, he approaches Jerusalem, and it was time. It was time for Jesus to go public. It's time to break the silence that he is, in fact, the Messiah. The time has come for him to lay down his life. The time has come to complete his mission. It was a, just a little less than a week before the, before the Passover started, and Jews from all over the modern world were traveling into Jerusalem for their annual sacrifice and celebration. And at the same time, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was heading right into the place and the people who wanted him arrested and wanted to see him dead. Verse 28, chapter 19, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up into Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Now Bethpage was a, was a town, a small town, uh, between the district of Jerusalem and Bethany. And as a traveler would approach Jerusalem from the east, they would come into Bethany about two miles out, outside of Jerusalem. And they would pass through Bethphage on the slope of the Mount of Olives on his way into Jerusalem. So he crests the hill, and at the top of the hill, the Mount of Olives, he can see Jerusalem. So he says in verse 30, as, he is, um, as he's drawn near to Bethpage and Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, he says this to his, to his disciples. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Apparently that was enough. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode away, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And we know in Matthew, it tells us they put their cloaks and their palm branches on, on the ground. Riding a donkey or any kind of animal was unknown to Jesus. The disciples had not seen Jesus on an animal riding between town to town. This is, the, this is the first time. And so they went and got the colt. They helped Jesus up on the colt and watched Jesus on his way towards Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Why would he ride a colt, a donkey, a young donkey, a young mule, um, 
through these little communities on the way to Jerusalem. Let me tell you, because this is central to the story. And my prayer is that it would cause you to worship this morning. Centuries earlier, the prophet Nathan spoke these words toward the end, to David toward the end of David's rule. This is 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. Nathan said to David, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, you die. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And what you, gotta, what you need to know about uh, many of the Davidic prophecies is that they had a near and a far fulfillment. And it had a near fulfillment in, the, in his offspring, his son called Solomon, and it had a far fulfillment in the first son, Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen to this. So go forward a couple of decades. Later on David's deathbed, David confirmed that his son Solomon would be king after him. This is 1 Kings 1, 33-35. And the king David said to them, to his servants, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. There anoint him king over Israel, then blow the trumpet, blow the shofar, and say, Long live Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne. For he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. You see, Jesus is not only the far fulfillment but he is riding the same route, the same road that Solomon rode on, on a small donkey. And the people recognized him as the king. The people of Israel grew up hearing stories of King David. And they pictured in these stories, as they're told these bedtime stories, they pictured Solomon riding his father's colt into Jerusalem. And as he was received as the Lord's anointed ruler, they would praise him. And the cult, the mule, was a symbol of royal coronation for a king. And Jesus, on that donkey, looked like a king. Not because of his robe, or his scepter, or his crown, but because of the memory that it triggered in God's people. And Jesus on that mule didn't just summon thoughts of Solomon as he approached Jerusalem on that, on that mule. He also brought to mind the words of the prophet Zechariah some 500 years earlier. And Zechariah prophesied and said to look for your future king. How are you going to recognize your king? He's going to be on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I've read this 20 times this last week, and I've gotten goosebumps every time. 
Jesus rode in on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy and to awaken the reality that he was not just a good man who healed the sick and the lame and the blind and raised the dead, but he was the long-awaited king and Messiah from the line of David that came to forgive the sins of the world. And at this time, Jesus had many followers. People were following, and he had just not, not in the... Uh, too distant past, he had just raised Lazarus from the death. So people, the throng, people are following him because of the works, the mighty works that he did. And at the same time, um, a couple hundred thousand people are headed into Jerusalem for the Passover. But I want you to, to, um, to see this, that these followers, these disciples, a disciple is a follower and a learner of Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were saved, quite frankly. But these disciples who were following him were doing it because of the mighty works that he performed. Not because of who he was and what he was going to do on the cross, but because of all the miracles. In many ways, it was like a sideshow to these people. Nineteen thirty-seven. As he was drawing near, drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, and glory in the highest." They knew they were seeing something special, and they knew that 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 Jesus was. Uh, was blessed of the Lord, that he came to bring peace. And they they had great insight, but they also had great misunderstanding. They were correct in that Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But the great misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem by his mighty works and that he would forcefully take the throne and make Israel free from the tyranny of their national enemies, which happened to be Rome at this time. They praised him, saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, but they were looking for peace on earth from a temporal king. In the past, Jesus concealed his identity, and he instructed his closest disciples not to tell anyone, saying, my time has not come. This day was different. Here the people shouted their praises, calling Jesus their king, and he said nothing to quiet him, quiet them. The time had come to complete his mission and receive his crown. But there was a group of people that weren't happy with that. And this were the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And the reason they weren't happy about it is it could upset their relationship with Rome. You see, they had an understanding with Rome. Pharisees, religious leaders, if you can just keep your religious people, the Jewish people, under control. You see, Rome was a polytheistic culture, hundreds of different gods. And they weren't going to stand for the worshipers of one god to turn the city upside down. So the Pharisees' prime concern was to protect themselves and the great life and understanding they had with the Roman government. They didn't want Jesus or anyone else to mess it up. You see, the religious leaders cared more about peace with Rome than they did about true and lasting peace with God. 
And in verse 39, these Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Yet Jesus was not going to back down. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. He boldly declared that if in fact, if he is in fact worthy to be praised, and the people wouldn't praise him on this triumphal entrance, the stones within her walls, the inanimate parts of creation that lined the streets would cry out and praise him. And we, when we meditate upon Jesus' march into Jerusalem, a march that would seal his fate, a march into people, his people, that were celebrating the Passover year after year after year, When we meditate upon that, the reality that Jesus was going into that hornet's nest to lay down his life for an atonement for our sins, our hearts should leap in worship. But there's so much more to this picture. And it's actually quite stunning. After receiving the praise of those who acknowledge him as king, the humble and sovereign savior, riding a donkey, crested the hill and overlooked Jerusalem the city that was just setting up for the Passover, the city that will be changed in about four days when the, when the Passover week starts. And he was suddenly moved with tears. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is not weeping for what's ahead for him, but what's ahead for the Jewish people, both physically and spiritually. Their temple and their city would be destroyed in about 40 years, in 70 AD. He weeps because the people who are gathering for the Passover in Jerusalem were not willing to come to him. Jesus is the point of the Passover celebration, and they're going to miss it. He is the Lamb of God who came to take the sins away, the sins of the world. He wept because on the day of his visitation, that the prophets pointed to that it's upon them and they're going to miss it. The day of salvation is here and many won't see it. And all who don't come to him will experience eternal separation and torment and that's why he's weeping. He is a sovereign God. He is sovereign over salvation, but he's not a heartless God. I think it was Piper that said that Jesus cares about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And Jesus is not just shedding a, a tear here. He is convulsing. That's what's behind the word weep. He's engaging in convulsive sobbing. It's intense lamenting. This humble king who is 
laying down his life is also a weeping judge sobbing, sobbing over the unrepentant people of Jerusalem. And this is the heart of a new kind of king. This is the heart of God. This is how Jesus sorrows over the hearts that missed their day and the things that make for peace. And what are the things that make for peace? It's repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's grieved when the the pinnacle of his creation rejects a relationship with him. It is true that God is sovereign over all who he determines to save. And he weeps over those who don't come. And we have a hard time putting those two things together. And I pity the hard-hearted Calvinist that has no heart for lost people because it's God's job to save, and it is God's job to save. But also we don't weep thinking that God is wringing his hands and wondering who's going to put their faith in him. It goes together. We believe in the sovereignty of God, and we weep for those who don't come. I want to emphasize that this doesn't mean that God's sovereign plan is wrecked on the rocks of human rebellion. It means that Jesus is more emotionally complex than we think he is. A death sentence awaits those who in pride and self-sufficiency dismiss his generous offer of salvation by grace through faith. Yet the same Jesus got upset with anyone who wished judgment on others. May we never wish judgment on others. Yes, there's a certain type of temporal judgment that is just. And that would be, Lord, whatever it takes, please stop the pain in Ukraine. Bring judgment to stop the pain. But we should care about the souls of people, even the groups of people that you have the hardest time with. Whether that be evil dictators, whether that be people that work in an abortion clinic, whether it be the other party, whether it be the foster, whether it be the birth mom that is doing nothing that's in her control to get her baby back. We should never say it serves you right. You get what you deserve. There's truth. There's consequences to sin. And every human being um, should get what we deserve, and that's hell. But the only hope for humanity is faith, is faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's stop calling judgment down on people and let's start praying and weeping for their souls. Though divine justice demands payment for sin, Jesus desires that all would turn to him and find shelter from the coming judgment. It says in Ezekiel 18.23 that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone, including the wicked. I love this little statement from Scott, Scott Sauls. He says, Jesus, at whose cross heaven's peace 
And perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Perfectly balanced judgment with compassion. That's Jesus. So please, brothers and sisters, let's let's not lift our head up too fast from this text, lest we miss the king's heart. Think and ask yourself about how often, if ever, you have wept over the hearts of other people, especially those who are guilty and deserving judgment. Jesus came not to judge and destroy, but to save. Jesus doesn't say, skip that. There's so much for you and me today. So much for me here. I feel like as I've been, uh, as I've processed, I feel like my heart at times has been softer to people that are in pain. People that are in temporal, physical pain and people that are headed towards a painful eternity. And I pray that the Lord would break our hearts. That he would cause us to weep. God is sovereign in salvation. But he uses compassionate hearts to shine and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was judged for guilty sinners. And I pray that we would weep for other guilty sinners and our weeping would move us to action. Jesus was judged for guilty sinners. Christian, you were as guilty as the most guilty person you have in your mind right now. That you were guilty and deserving eternal torment and separation. Listen to the words of Paul. This is for you, Christian. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, I love that, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You and I deserve judgment, but Jesus was judged so that we will never be judged. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. If there's anybody here, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, the day of visitation is today. It's tomorrow. It's the next day. But there may not be a tomorrow. And I've said this before, the ark of salvation is open. The door to the ark of salvation is open. But the flood of his wrath and judgment is coming. 
And when the flood comes, when he returns to judge the living and the dead, the door will slam shut and you will suffer an eternity of torment and separation from God. Heaven and hell are real. And the only thing you need to do to get in the boat is to acknowledge that you're a sinner, turn from your sin, and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't need to be perfect. Number two, I pray, Christians, that we would weep for other guilty sinners. Jesus wept for guilty sinners. He felt the sorrow of their coming judgment, and so should he. He cared about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. This is instructive. It's something to pray about. If you're looking for something to do in your community groups, um, talk about this passage. Who are you praying for? Who are you weeping for? And while you're weeping, it doesn't mean you you don't have a deep inner peace that God is in control and that his wise purposes will come to pass, but it doesn't mean you don't weep. In fact, on the contrary, I pray that you would pray that God would give you tears. There's so much pain in the world. There's so much suffering that are, that's far from us and that is near to us. There's so many people that we know and love that are headed towards a hopeless eternity. Pray that God would help you be tenderly moved, that the, the, the heart of Jesus sees brokenness and sin and lost people and it weeps. So who are you praying for? Who are you weeping over that God may want, to, want you to share the love of Christ with? There's 200 prayer requests. I don't know. Good 30% of them was for lost loved ones. And I'd say there's another maybe 30% for those that are in some type of physical pain. Last but not least, and we'll go into the Lord's Supper, I pray that our weeping would move us to action. Do we care more about having peace with others or having others find peace? I know for me, I'm, I chicken out with loved ones at times. I feel like they know where I stand. And I want to keep the peace so I can keep the relationship intact. Jesus risked it all. Do we want to be peacekeepers or peacemakers? One of the most loving things we can do is compassionately voice the truth that hell, just like heaven, is real. I want you to consider the words of Penn Gillette. You've, you've probably heard this before. I think I've used it before. He's an atheist comedian. He says this, He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? From the mouth of an atheist. 
If we believe in God, and if we love the people God places around us, then we must at some point risk social awkwardness and risk peace and share the truth. And as we do, we must also remember that this truth must be delivered with a spirit of gentleness, respect, and love-saturated tears. Christian, you're not only the object of God's grace and love, but you're the instrument of God's grace and love. At the table, at the Lord's table, we're reminded that Jesus was judged. That he took the judgment from the Father that you deserved. And he was judged so that all who are united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection will never be judged. He, he drank the cup of judgment dry so that there's not a drop left for you and me to taste. As we go to this table, I want you to be reminded that there are seats at the table that are still open. There are seats at the eternal table, the Lord's Supper, that are open. And he's bringing people to the table every day in every corner of the world. But one day the table will be full. Every chair will have somebody seated in it. And there will be no more room at the table. So as you take the elements, would you pray that God would remind you that he was judged so that you would never be judged? Would you pray that he would cause you to weep for other guilty sinners? And would you pray that those truths would move you to shine and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others? If you're with us today and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We're so glad you're here. We're glad you're here and that you get to observe this meal with us. We would ask you not to take. And if you want to know more about what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus, talk to me, your community group leader, many, many people in here, and ask them. And I pray that they would be glad to tell you. But the table's not for you if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus. So folks, this is our second time in a row, and remember, it's a counterclockwise progression. We were in the first week last week, uh, first sermon last week, first service last week. Um, you left going like, I'm not sure if I went left, right, or whatever, but I did take the bread and I took the juice. Um, got it, we got it right in the second service. So um, each of the tables uh, will be approached from the right side of the table as you're facing, you're right. So counterclockwise out of your seats. And if you would just um, uh, do business with the Lord, um, he asked you not to take the elements in an un unworthy manner. He asked you to examine your heart, not to see if you're in, in the faith, but examine your heart and to, um, and to ask him, God, is there, is there anything that I'm holding against any other Christian? Um, is there any sin that I need to confess? And then um, after you take the elements, go back to your seat. I'll come up here and we'll, we'll partake together. Make sense?